Thanks for listening to Covenant Church Podcast. We hope that this message is exactly what you need to hear. Got to say now it's like glasses, headset, mask, trying to get all that coordinated, and my glasses are just now, you know, clearing up. But happy 4th of July weekend. Was it a good one? Wow. Most of the day I thought, oh, it's the 4th of July. It's kind of came and went. Uh, I, I preached my way through uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi before. It was quite a few years ago, but I thought, hey, why not? I'll, I'll go back through the old bin of sermons and pull it out and take a look. And, and, uh, but, but the sermon on these verses was missing. Apparently, I was on vacation. Apparently, I had asked someone else on church, knowing that, you know, it was probably a holiday weekend, there wouldn't be many people there anyway, if someone else would just go ahead and preach it. Ironic, isn't it? Actually, I thought that was kind of awesome. I mean, I finally get to preach the only text in Philippians that I haven't preached through before, and it's such a rich and a potent and a powerful passage. It's a discussion of some of the most profound theology in the New Testament. It speaks to the very center of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So if you have your Bibles or the app on your phone or you want to look up on the screen, let's take a look at this passage from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. I'm going to back up really and do these first three verses that Bob covered last week just to put it in context. Paul writes, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs those people who do evil, those mutilators who say that you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight years old. Uh, eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And I want you to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Paul starts uh, chapter 3 with a warning. I took a look at that last week, but he's addressing a problem in the church. There there were some Jewish Christians, at least professing uh, Christians. They were Judaizers. uh, Paul Paul doesn't hold back. He says these dogs, which is exactly what they were calling the Gentiles, these mutilators. Paul's not messing. These Judaizers are adding requirements to the gospel 
of God's grace, like physical circumcision. They, they were saying that faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works. And, and Paul is going to correct their math in just a moment, but he's, he isn't going to let anyone or anything rob this church that he loved, rob this church of their joy. He, he's not going to let anyone uh, hinder or anything hinder the advance of the gospel. In fact, when, when we come to our text in verse 4, uh, Paul engages in some um, Greek smack-talking. I'm not exactly sure what that would sound like, but I think it's this right here. He, he's calling them out. He's saying if anyone, anyone thinks that they have some reasons to boast, if anyone could rely on human effort, it's me. It's me. Go ahead and bring it. Bring it on. He uses his own life. He uses his own conversion story, an illustration, as an illustration of the true gospel. He backs up and he talks about his life as he came to Christ on that Damascus road. There's no confidence in human effort. I, I actually learned that Friday playing golf for the first time since having my hip replaced. There's no confidence in the flesh. <laughs> it's a cruel game. Uh, but if there was, if there was, hands down, Paul says, I would win. No question. And to prove his point, he makes a list of things that he has received and things he has achieved in verses 5 and 6. And I'm just going to summarize those with uh, five areas. First is family heritage. His family heritage, something he received, something he didn't achieve, but something that was his, circumcised on the eighth day. Not, not the not the seventh, not the ninth, no. His parents had it down the eighth day. That's when it should be done. He was a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Family heritage and social status. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. It's one of the larger tribes, a prestigious tribe. And he's saying, I'm a, I'm a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. Biblical knowledge. Says he was a Pharisee. And before you're too quick to judge, because we have a negative impression of Pharisees from our vantage point, understand that at the time they were incredibly trusted and respected. And scholars would point out that Paul probably had the equivalent of three PhDs. He knew and he loved and he obeyed the word. Religious activity. He was zealous. Paul was one of those guys, if he was in the church and you needed something done, that's who you would ask. He'd get it done. He was passionate. He was zealous. Now, he took that zealousness to an extreme, his activity to an extreme, but not, again, in that context. He persecuted the church because he thought the church was speaking heretically. It was heresy to point people to faith in Christ. And then moral lifestyle. He obeyed the law without fault. He was above Reproach. He wasn't perfect, but when he did blow it, if he did something wrong, he followed the law and he made the sacrifice, he gave the offering, he did whatever it took, whatever the law required. Are you impressed? If you're not impressed, it's very simply this, that you aren't a Jew living in the first century. <laughs> because if you were, you would be. This term uh, that sometimes people use to describe others who are of high position in society, what do we call them? Blue bloods. And Paul was a Jewish blue blood. He was as in as in could be. He had it all. He had a Jewish descent and, and a, a, an excellent Jewish education and a high social standing and a reputation above reproach for keeping the law and moral purity. What more could you want? 
what more could you do? And that's his point. Nothing. If being religious could get you to heaven, then Paul, Paul would have a front row seat, a guaranteed front row seat right next to, to Moses and, and, and Elijah. His spiritual resume was as good as it gets. Paul's list, uh, both what he received and what he achieved, Paul says in verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable. I was putting my confidence in these things, my security and my significance and even my salvation. I was counting on these things in family heritage and social status and biblical knowledge and, and religious activity and, and, and moral lifestyle. But now, what does he say? But now I, I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 and he, and he says it's all rubbish. It's all, it's all garbage. And that's putting it very kindly, putting it very lightly. The term that's used here, it's only used once in the New Testament. And it literally means dung. It literally, literally means excrement. I think that's the first time I've said that from the pulpit. Uh, as Paul looked at his blue-blooded uh, 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 pedigree and his impeccable resume, he said, it's all dung. It's all, it's all dirty diapers, for those of you with little kids. It's, it's a pile of, of, of it, okay? When we read garbage, we ordinarily assume that, that, uh, about, that it's talking about those things that God would say are bad, those things that are sinful. For most of us, the the dung, right? If we were to say this garbage, this dung that's supposed to be thrown out, we would, we would think about bad habits or materialism and dabbling in pornography and sexual immorality and idolatry and, and racial prejudice and uncontrolled temper and all this bad stuff that we know is wrong. And so if I said to you, throw it out, get rid of the garbage in your life, how many of you would instinctively say, oh, my ethnic heritage or my college education, or my years as a Sunday school teacher. But that's precisely what Paul is talking about, what he's pointing to in Philippians 3. For Paul, anything, anything that keeps you from Christ is dung. It's garbage. No matter how good it looks to you, no matter how good it looks to others, a person may say, and you can substitute any, any affiliation denomination here, but someone may say, I'm a Presbyterian. My father was a Presbyterian. My grandfather was a Presbyterian. Twelve uh, generations of Presbyterians. I'm a descendant from John Knox on my father's side. On my mother's side, Jonathan Edwards. And both of them descended from John Calvin. To which I reply, that's awesome. My dad's name was John, and he was a butcher, and there's really no difference. You can be proud of your heritage and your lineage. You can be, you should be. But don't mistake, make the mistake of thinking that your heritage grants you any special favor with God. In a survey of, of uh, 1,000 Protestant pastors just put out this week, Around 60% said that this weekend they would include music that, that honored and celebrated America. 
And patriotism in church doesn't end on the 4th of July. 74% of those surveyed, uh, these pastors believe it is appropriate to display the American flag in worship services throughout the year. And it's all fine, okay? There's no judgment here. I, I, I love and appreciate and grateful for the fact that I'm an American, and I honor those who have or are serving in our armed forces. But, but get this, in that same survey, these pastors were asked, does your church sometimes seem to love America more than God? And 53% said yes. It's fine to take pride in your ethnicity, in, in our national heritage, to appreciate all the good points and all the good gifts and all the good blessings and to learn from the inevitable mistakes that have been made by those who have gone before us. But, and this is the point in Philippians 3, if you think that being Chinese or South African or, or British or Brazilian or American somehow puts you in a better position with God, then you are sorely mistaken. I, I, I know it's uh, a phrase, and again, I, I want to be careful, but this phrase like, God bless America. I've always wondered, like, man, is that, is that really, do we have that right? Shouldn't it be America or more specifically uh, followers of Christ bless God? <laughs> Shouldn't it be us that, that, that re, uh, because of all that he has done, because of all that we have received, that we live in such a way that his name is honored and his banner is raised? And if you use your national heritage to look down at other people because you feel superior to them, then you don't understand your own sin, our own depravity and the depth of it, and how we stand in serious need of the grace of God. Uh, Jason Perry, a pastor and director of Oak Tree Leadership, writing about the divisions in America, he says that if, if we're going to see transformation in our culture, then we must preach the unpainted, unfinished gospel of the heavy, rough-hewn, blood-splattered, sweat-soaked, and nail-scarred old rugged cross. And Jesus put it this way in Mark 8:34. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple... If you want to be my disciple, then you must deny yourselves and you must take up the cross and follow after me. And there's no no flag draped around that cross. Because we all stand, all of us. We all stand under God. And we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Everything... Everything that we read in Isaiah 64, 6 is true of all of us, that we are all infected and impure with sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags, rubbish, dung, garbage. If we are trying to hold them up as the means to our salvation. Everything Paul used to put in the profit column, he now puts in the liability column. And everything he saw in the loss column, he now puts in the, in the, in the, in the gain column. I was a, a, a business major in college, and so I was required to take accounting. 
I did not enjoy accounting, but I took accounting. And, and I think that his, his accounting here, that it would have been probably flagged by an auditor. But it was justified. Because Paul knew that this was how he was justified. In verse 9, it says, I became righteous through faith in Christ. I think some people, in fact, maybe most people think that, that, that they're good to go. Do you do that poll, person on the street, and you ask that question, are you going to heaven? I think most people say they're good to go because they're good, Be- because they are nice people, because they, they do nice things, because they have nice kids and nice jobs, and they attend nice churches. And as long as, as, long as the, 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 the good things outweigh the bad things, as long as the scale tips by comparison with others in that direction, then I'm fine, right? Then I'm good. Our good enough is not good enough. Even our very best is not good enough. Even on your very best day, when you've done the very best things, it's still not good enough. Religion without Christ is dangerous. You can say your prayers five times a day. You can, you can, you can be baptized, and you can quote Scripture chapter and verse, and you can share in the Lord's Supper, and you can drop a, a, a million bucks in, in that the offering box that I'm looking at back there. You can, if you want to, you can. <laughs> but if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter. It's not a bit of good. Religious people have a cost, a Christ plus faith. Christ plus. They're trusting in Christ plus something else. And so they they love to sing that old gospel hymn, Jesus paid. How's that go? No, I don't think so. I think it goes, Jesus paid almost all of it. Right? That's how they sing it. Jesus paid almost all of it because they think they've got to add their part to what Jesus did. But even good things that keep you from the best thing becomes a bad thing. Got it? Even good things that keep you from the best thing becomes a bad thing. Paul concluded that his advantages didn't matter in God's eyes. And that in some ways, all these good things, they actually were keeping him. They kept him from discovering God's grace until he learned to count them as dung, until he saw them as as, as nothing compared to. And here's the key. It's not they were bad in themselves. They're, they're neutral. You can't change, you know, what you received. I'm not saying you should. You can take joy in that. But it's nothing compared to what? Knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Say it with me. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Nothing. I cannot tell if you were saying it with me or not. Uh, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to say yes. Uh, but this is a radically different kind of Christianity than, than thousands and thousands of people are living out. It can be a stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles. It can be a stumbling block to those who are insiders or outsiders. A stumbling block to legalists and to nationalists. Anyone who doesn't understand what what Paul's saying and what he, what he writes very succinctly in Ephesians 2, 
8 and 9, those familiar words, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. So no one should be boasting about it. No one should find their confidence in it. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation plus works. Faith equals salvation plus works. He's not taking works and he's not throwing it all out. He's just putting it in its right place. It's what flows out of that relationship with Christ. It flows out of our faith in Christ. Because Jesus plus anything equals nothing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked the question this way in Mark 8, 36. He says, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, but he lose his soul? Human striving is a, man, it's a trap. <laughs> and we find ourselves, maybe that's part of one of the kind of pluses that have, blessings that have come out of this season where, you know, for, for a lot of you, maybe it's forced you to slow some things down and reprioritize and spend some time on, in and with things that maybe matter and last, but this striving, it, it, it will never be enough. That's what we discover. Sooner than we think we'll be lying in a box six feet under with grass growing over our heads and, and all the things that we spent our time striving after, they're, they're, they're going to be... They're going to be handed to somebody else. Someone else is going to have your money. Someone else is going to have your job. Your, your, your fame, it's going to fade. Glory is going to disappear. And we will eventually be forgotten. I want my life to count. I want my life to count. I want my life to matter. You resonate with that? I mean, isn't that a God, God made us for a purpose? And so I, I, don't want, I don't want to waste my life. I don't. For his glory and for the good of others, to invest it in those things that matter and last, to send them on ahead, I, I want to make a difference. So let me ask you a question. What will you have to show for your life when you stand before Jesus Christ? And for those in Christ, I'm not talking about your salvation, but I'm talking about talking about standing before him and, and to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But I could ask it this way, too. Where will you be when you get where you are going? Where will you be when you, were get, when you get where you are going? Evidently, I, I, I think Paul wrestled deeply with these questions and he evaluated the entire direction, the course of his life before and after he met Jesus. He looks at that Damascus Road experience and he looks backwards and he looks forward and he's like, man, no comparison. Once he met Jesus on that road, his life was radically transformed. Everything that was up was down and everything down was up. He did a complete 180. His values were, were literally flipped. Gains became lost, and only one thing truly mattered. Everything he once put in the credit column, he now considered liability, lost, done, compared to Christ. 
What does that mean, knowing Christ? What does that mean? I'm I'm reading a book. I don't know if you've uh, heard of the author Eric Larson before, um, but it's a book entitled The Splendid and the Vile. And it's, uh, uh, so now you just need a break um, from, you know, church and, and theology. And I just wanted to read uh, this account. It's an account of Winston Churchill. And, and it's uh, during his first year as the prime minister um, uh, of, of England. And that year coincided with uh, the, the start of World War II and and, and the, the blitzkrieg on, on London. I mean, at one point, like 57 days in a row. And it really is a, a, a great primer on leadership under pressure. And because I'm reading uh, this book about Churchill, I, I, I have come to know about Churchill a little better than I did before. Um, but I don't know him. <laughs> I know about him, but I don't know him. I don't know him the same way I know my wife or my kids or my best friends. See, you, you, can, you can read about Jesus. You, you can read about this leader and his leadership style, his sacrificial servant leadership, and you can read about his teachings, what kind of a man he was, but knowing Christ isn't, isn't just knowing about him. It's really knowing him. It's, it's having a, a vital and real and, and personal and deep relationship with him. You get the difference? It's, it's like, I mean, Winston Churchill, I'm probably, well, he's gone. He's dead. So, but even if he wasn't, I don't know that he would want to spend much time with me. <laughs> um, but Jesus Christ does. And he wants to spend time with you. He wants a relationship with you. I mean, the person next to you may not even want to spend as much time as they've had to spend with you recently, <laughs> right? So your parents next to your kids, they all went like this. I'll just let you know, they all did this. Um, but Jesus Christ, who knows us? I mean, he knows everything about us. And he's like, I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me the way I know you. Paul writes... In verses 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So to know isn't just head knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's transformational knowledge. It's, it's like the covenant vows that the, the, those, those uh, uh, traditional maybe vows that you shared if you're married on your wedding day. For better, for worse. I always wondered if someone who, you know, wasn't a Christian and, and why they're saying this. But, it, but it's, do they know what they're saying? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and, and to cherish, right? But our covenant with Christ doesn't end with the words often in, 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 in that covenant, in those vows, till death, right, do us part. Death isn't the end of our relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, in many ways, it's just the beginning of that relationship. Paul says, I want, I, want, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. There, there's no power in the law. No power to overcome sin. No power to serve. No power for victory. No power for change. 
in, 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 in our flesh. Paul says, I've been operating without power. I've been striving. I've been struggling. I've been working like, like crazy. But now I, I see all the power I need for all the situations I'll ever face and all the people I ever have to deal with. All that power is available in Christ. Where do I see it? In his resurrection. Raising himself from the grave showed that he had power over the physical realm and over, over the spiritual realm. Power over death and power over demons. Over anything that tries to hold us back and to keep us down. Paul says, I want to know Christ and to experience that kind of power. The same power that is available to all who believe. The power to overcome. The power to change. The power to break the chains of sin and death. He also says, I want to share in Christ's suffering, even his death. Victory over sin and death sounds more appealing. <laughs> Identifying with the resurrection, I don't know about you, but, but I'm more likely to go, bring it. I want to identify with that. <laughs> but now he's saying, identify, share in my sufferings and my death. God was preparing Paul for suffering. I could have taken an entirely different track in applying, talking about this passage, because it really it's, it's preparation for suffering, for losing everything. And so here's the order. He, he counted it as loss, and then we know in his life that he actually lost it. He counted it as loss, and then he lost it. Paul's life was hard. Remember, he's writing this from prison, right? But he was prepared to suffer. It's extraordinary, really, when you look at Paul and all that he goes through and, and yet maintaining this positive outlook and attitude and purpose in his life because he already knew that nothing he could lose would compare to what he had already gained and would gain. Suffering has a way of testing us. It's a proving ground for, for seeing what's inside, where our true affections and our loyalties and our sense of security and significance are found. What happens when you suffer? When you lose your health? When you lose a relationship? When, 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 when your 401k is, is, is barely a 1k? And, and what then? Some people are finding that out right now. And they're discovering that they're standing on, on, on shifting sand and shaky ground. All the stuff in this world, it's just stuff, right? But if all that stuff is what we have placed our confidence in, then what? I'll confess that there have been plenty of times that I've turned to people for applause and approval. That I've looked at my achievements or my titles for my significance. And then when it didn't work out, when, when people let me down or I let myself down, when I stumbled and fell, when I experienced loss and suffering on my own hands or at the hands of others, I, I, I thought, in, the, in those moments, I'll confess, I thought, man, I've lost it all. I've lost everything. And I'm out alive today to tell you that that's, that's, that's fake news. <laughs> that's a lie. That by faith and, and, and through grace, in those moments where I thought, where, where Satan once wanted to steal the truth from me and exchange it for a lie and that to feed me this lie that man you've lost everything that i still had the one thing that mattered i still had jesus and jesus still had me and that's enough 
more than enough. Some people consider uh, verse 11 kind of a strange way to end this section because Paul seems to be expressing doubt about his own resurrection. When he says one way or another, or that I may attain the resurrection, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I think he means to say that Jesus is his plan A and there is no plan B. I think he's saying, I'm trusting Jesus so so fully that, if, that, that I, don't have a, I don't have a backup plan. If Jesus doesn't come through for me, then, then my body is going to rot in that grave. That this is all there is. That there's no hope. Well, that's what salvation by faith is all about. It means trusting Jesus so completely that if Jesus doesn't get you to heaven, then you're not going. That's placing your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Christ, is, in this passage, Christ is, through the, the, the story of Paul's own conversion, as an example, Christ offers you union with him and righteousness and power and fellowship and glory. And what are you going to hold on to that's equal to that? And what good is it going to do you if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? So tell me this, whenever you are called to choose between anything in this world and Christ, what do you choose? And if you lose any or all of the things of this world that it has to offer, do you lose your joy? Do you lose your peace? Do you lose your significance and your security along with it? Do you know Jesus? I mean, really know Jesus and the truth that really sets us free and holds us firm, that we are made by Christ, that we are saved by Christ, that we are marked by Christ, that we are forgiven in Christ, that we are kept in Christ, that our hope is in Christ, that our freedom is in Christ, that our confidence is in Christ, that our life is in Christ. The term Christian isn't used very often, but this phrase, in Christ, is used repeatedly. And it's the same thing. As Christians, our life is in Christ. If if you were to take a, a piece of paper in an open book, and that piece of paper, uh, use that as, as your life. This is, this is Rob. As tattered, as torn, as messed up as broken and needy and sinful as I am. But you take, take your life and you, that, this piece of paper that represents you, and you take this open book, and this represents Jesus Christ. And by faith, you're dropped in to Christ. It's not enough to be near Christ. It's not enough to be next to Christ. To be in Christ, it means that God no longer sees our frailty and our sin and our brokenness, but God sees his son, Jesus. The ESV translates the beginning of verse 9 this way, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
Put your confidence in Christ. Christ plus anything equals nothing, but Christ and Christ alone equals everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life and the writings of Paul and thankful for his experience that might be ours through faith by grace. Thank you that, God, that you made us and made us to love us. You made us so that we might love you back, that we might have a relationship with you, that even when we were at our very, very, very worst, God, you stretched out your arms when you sent your son Jesus and, and you said, I love you the very, very most. Not because of, but in spite of. God, all that, that we might hold up before you, the good, the bad, the ugly, at the end of the day, compared to you, Jesus, it's, it's filthy rags. It's garbage. But, oh, Jesus, we, we can have you. And we can find that you are sufficient, that you are enough, that you are our strength and our joy and our life. So, God, if there be anyone here today, anyone who's watching online, who's wondering, if all their striving and all their good deeds and or on the flip side, all their, their ugly stuff and all their bad stuff, if either of those things is enough to secure glory, to enjoy fellowship, to receive power, the answer is no. It's just not. But for this, for this malady, in the midst of this depravity, in the midst of our brokenness and our stumbling and our failures, God, thank you for sending your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would, would not perish, but would have eternal life, so that we would boast and brag not in ourselves, we would not put our confidence in the things of this world or the things of the flesh, but in you, Jesus, and in your cross. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this day that you had invited us into that kind of fullness and that kind of freedom. May it be so. As we take hold of it in your name, Jesus, even as you take hold of us. Amen. For more ways to connect, visit our website at covenantdoylestown.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.